We come again in this episode to the personal reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. And this is, again, just a personal reading of this book. Uh, it is a survey of church history through the centuries. And uh, I'm doing this, I'm re reading this, in fulfillment of the requirements for a class I'm taking through the Master's University, a class called Church History. And I'm bringing you along this journey with me because I think it's very important for Christians to have a, uh, at least a, a nominal understanding of church history. Um, I think it's very important. So we come to this section again, the supremacy of the old Catholic imperial church, 313 to 590 AD. And we come to chapter 13. Again, this is a personal reading of this book. Um, there are names and um, places that I've never heard before, and therefore I'm probably going to mispronounce them. Um, so please just give me some grace there. Be patient with me, especially if there are names or words that you are familiar with. Um, this, this is just a personal reading, <clears throat> and I pray that you will glean from it. So chapter 13, The Golden Age of Church Fathers. The Church Fathers, whose work came before the Council of Nicaea, were known as the Anti-Nicene Fathers, whether they were Apostolic Fathers, Apologists, or Polemicists. Between the Councils of Nicaea in 325 AD and Chalcedon in 451, several of the most able Fathers of the Christian Church did their greatest work. They endeavored to study the Scriptures along more scientific lines in order to develop their theological meaning. Because of the sheer weight of his work and his influence on the church of his day, Augustine was the greatest of these fathers. Roman numeral one, Eastern post-Nicene fathers. The fathers of the Eastern wing of the church belong to what we have been called, uh, what have been called the Alexandrian or Antiochene schools of interpretation. Such men as Chrysostom or Theodore of Mopsustia, followed the Antiochene, or Syrian school, Sir, uh, yeah, Syrian school of interpretation, emphasizing a grammatico-historical study of the scriptures in order to discover the meaning that the sacred writer had for those to whom he was writing. They avoided the allegorizing tendency practiced by the men of the Alexandrian school, who followed the example of Origen. Heading A. Chrysostom, circa 347 to 407 AD. Expositor and Orator. John, who was called Chrysostom, shortly after his death, because his eloquence was literally that of one who deserved the name, quote-unquote, golden-mouthed, was born about 347 AD into a wealthy aristocratic family of Antioch. His mother, Anthusa, reminds one of Augustine's mother because though she was widowed at the age of 20, she refused to remarry in order that she might devote all her time to her son's education. Chrysostom was a student of the sophist Libinus, Libinus, Libinius, who had been a friend of Emperor Julian. This man gave him a good training in the Greek classics and the rhetoric that laid the foundation for his excellent speaking ability. For a time, he practiced law, but after his baptism in 368, he became a monk. 
After his mother's death in 374, he practiced a severely ascetic life until 380. During this time, he lived in a cave on a mountain near Antioch. Ill health stopped this severe regimen. Ordained in 386, he preached some of his best sermons in Antioch until, until 398. In that year, he was made a patriarch of Constantinople. He held this position until Empress Eudoxia finally banished him in 404 because he had denounced her for her extravagant dress and for placing a silver statue of herself near St. Sophia, where he preached. He died in exile in 407. Chrysostom lived a pure, simple life that was a rebuke to his highly placed wealthy parishioners in Constantinople. Extremely ascetic in his insistence on simplicity of life and inclined to mysticism, he did not always possess tact. He was vehemently anti-Jewish, as is clearly expressed in a series of eight homilies entitled Adversus Judaeus. Although he was a giant in moral and spiritual stature, he was short and thin. His emaciated and pleasant face, wrinkled forehead, bald head, and piercing bright eyes made a lasting impression on his hearers. Perhaps some years of study under Diodorus of Tarsus had something to do with his ability as an expositor. About 640 of his, 640 of his homilies are still ex- extant, and even a reading of the cold print gives, a, gives one some idea of his oratorical ability. Most of his homilies or sermons were expositions of Paul's epistles. Not knowing Hebrew, he could not make a critical investigation of the Old Testament scriptures, but he kept in, kept the importance of the context in mind and sought to discover the literal meaning of the writer and to make a practical application of that meaning to the problems of the people of his day. This pra- this, these practical applications of the gospel were given with great moral earnestness. He taught that there must be no divorce or morals and religion of morals and religion. <clears throat> the cross of and ethics must go hand in hand. It is little wonder that he was was and still is hailed as the greatest pulpit orator the Eastern Church ever had. Heading B. Theodore, circa 350 to 428 A.D. Exegete. Another noted church father is Theodore of Mopsustia. He too studied the scriptures for about ten years under Diodorus of Tarsus. This good education was made possible by by his birth into a wealthy family. He was ordained a presbyter in Antioch in 383 and became the bishop of Mopsustia in Cilicia about 392. Theodore has been rightly called, quote, the prince of ancient exegesis, excuse me, the prince of ancient exegetes, end quote. He opposed the allegorical system of interpretation and insisted on a thorough understanding of the grammar and the text and the historical background of the text in order to discover the meaning of the writer. He also gave careful attention to the text in its immediate and its more remote context, This type of study made him an able commentator and theologian. He wrote commentaries on such books of the Bible as Colossians and the letters to the Thessalonians. 
Both he and Chrysostom had a healthy influence on the interpretation of the Bible in their day. Their work was marked was a marked contrast to the strained interpretations of Scripture that resulted from the use of the allegorical method of interpretation. Heading C. Eusebius, circa 260 to 340. Church historian. One of the most widely studied of the church fathers is Eusebius of Caesarea, who has, who has as much right to the title of father of church history as Herodotus has to the title father of history. After receiving a good, good education under Pamphilus at Caesarea, he helped his friend Pamphilus build up his library in that city. <clears throat> Eusebius was an assiduous student and read everything he could obtain that might help him in his research. He exerted widely from both profane and sacred literature. Much literature of his day that might otherwise have been lost has been preserved because these excerpts were quoted in his work. Eusebius's personality was one that fitted him for such scholarly pursuits. He was of a gentle and agreeable disposition and disliked the quarrels engendered by the Arian heresy. He was given a place of honor at the right hand of Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, and, like him, preferred a compromise between the parties of Athanasius and Arius. It was a Caesarean creed, put forth by Eusebius of Caesarea, that the Council of Nicaea modified and accepted. His greatest work is Ecclesiastical History, a survey of the history of the Church from Apostolic Times until 324. His purpose was to make a record of past trials of the Church at the end of its long period of struggle and the beginning of the, its era of prosperity. This work is especially valuable today because Eusebius had access to the fine library at Caesarea and the imperial archives. He made a great effort to be honest and objective in his use of the best and most reliable of the primary sources that were available to him. In his critical use of many reliable documents, Eusebius anticipated something of the careful scientific study that the modern historians that the modern historian does in evaluating the sources of his knowledge. It is little wonder that Eusebius is our best source of knowledge concerning the history of the church during the first three centuries of its existence. But scholars regret that he did not make careful footnotes of his sources of knowledge after the manner of the modern historian. Sometimes, too, his work becomes little more than a collection of facts and extracts with no orderly view of cause and effect. Despite these defeats and the mon monotonous rambling of dissolute style, the work has been of inestimable value to the Church all throughout the ages. Eusebius wrote the Chronicle, a universal history from the time of Abraham until 323. The quote-unquote Chronicle Canons, which is a part of the Chronicle, provided the conventional chronological framework for medieval history. His Life of Constantine was written somewhat as an appendix to his history and is an excellent, though somewhat laudatory, source of information concerning the activities of Constantine as they related to the Church. 
He also wrote a laudatory biography of Constantine. The historical work of Eusebius was continued by two successors who did not always measure up to the high standard of reliability set by him. It must be said, however, that these laymen, Socrates and Sozomen, both trained for the legal profession, showed a lack of bigotry even in dealing with those who were opposed to them. Socrates' work carries the story of Christianity from 305 to 439 in an attempt to complete the task begun by Eusebius. Sozomen was less independent than Socrates, and after plagiarizing his work, and often plagiarized his work, he also often digressed in favor of asceticism. His work covers the period from 323 to 425. Together with Eusebius, these men are the chief ecclesiastical authorities of the history of the ancient church. Roman numeral 2. Western Post-Nicene Fathers The fathers of the Western Church in this period excelled in different fields from those of the East. The translation of the scriptures, the writing of pagan philosophers, and the writing of theological treatises were important parts of their work. The practical bent of the Latin, in contrast with the interest and speculation of the Greek, may be seen in the work of Jerome. Ambrose, and Augustine. Heading A. Jerome. Circa 331 to 420 AD. Commentator and translator. Jerome, a native of Venetia, was baptized in 360 and for several years was a wandering student in Rome in the cities of Gaul. During the next decade, He visited Antioch and followed the monastic life while he learned Hebrew. He became secretary of Damasus, bishop of Rome, in 382, and Damasus suggested to him that he might profitably make a new translation of the Bible. In 386, Jerome went to Palestine, and there, through the generosity of Paula, a wealthy Roman woman whom he had taught Hebrew, he lived in a monastic Retreat at Bethlehem. He led his retreat for nearly 35 years. Jerome's greatest work was a Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate. Before 391, he had completed the revision of the Latin New Testament. He went beyond the Greek of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament to make a Latin translation from the Hebrew, finishing his work around 405. Jerome's version of the Bible has been widely used by the Western Church and has been, until recently, the only official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church since the Council of Trent. Jerome was also an able commentator and wrote many commentaries that are still helpful today. His early love for for, and knowledge of the classics was a help in the interpretation of the scriptures, though in later years he disavowed classical learning. He wrote a fine work, De Veris Illustribus, after the model of ancient biographers. It contains brief biographical and bibliographical sketches of leading Christian writers and their works from the time of the apostles until his day. His love of the ascetic life caused him to champion it with his pen, 
and the later medieval popularity of the ascetic life in the West owed much of the writings of Jerome on this subject. Heading B. Ambrose. Circa 339-97. to Administrator and Preacher. Ambrose demonstrated his ability in the areas of church administration, preaching, and theology. His father had held the high position of perfect of Gaul, and his family, high in imperial circles in Rome, educated him in law for a political career. He soon rose to the position of imperial governor of the area around the city of Milan. Upon his death of the upon the death of the bishop of Milan in three seventy four, the people unanimously wanted him to take that position. Believing this this to be the call of God, he gave up his high position, distributed his money to the poor, became a bishop, and began an intensive study of the scriptures and theology. Ambrose proved to be a fearless and able administrator of the affairs of the church. He spoke against the powerful Arian groups and did not even hesitate to oppose Emperor Theodosius. In 390 and 391, Theodosius had gathered the people of Thessalonica, whose governor had been slain, into the square in that city and had ordered their massacre. About 7,000 were killed. When he came to the church to take the communion, Ambrose refused him admission to the Lord's Supper until he humbly and publicly repented of this deed. Ambrose wanted to make the state and its rulers respect the church so that they would not transgress on the rightful claims of the church in the spiritual realm. Even though his practical expositions of Scripture were marred by his use of the allegorical method, Ambrose was an able preacher. His preaching in the in his excuse me, his preaching in the cathedral at Milan was instrumental in bringing Augustine to a knowledge of Christianity that later resulted in his salvation. He introduced congregational singing of hymns and antiphonal psalmody into the Western Church. He also became a theologian of no mean ability, though he had not studied theology until his consecration as bishop. Heading C, Augustine, circa 354 to 430, philosopher and theologian. Although Jerome and Ambrose were honored with the title of doctor by the medieval church, their fame is small compared to the reputation of Augustine. Both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism pay tribute to the, to the contribution of Augustine to the cause of Christianity. He was an able polemicist, a good preacher, a fine Episcopal administrator, a superb theologian, and the creator of a Christian philosophy of history that is still valid in its essentials. Living at a time when the old classical civilization seemed to be doomed to fall before the barbarians, Augustine stood between two worlds, the classical and the new medieval. He insisted that people must look forward to the quote-unquote city of God, a spiritual civilization because the old classical civilization was passing. Augustine was born in 354 into the home of a Roman official in the North African town of Tagist. His mother, Monica, prayed much for his conversion to the Christian faith. 
He received his early education in the local school where he learned Latin to the accompaniment of many beatings and hated Greek so much that he never learned to use it proficiently. He was sent to school in nearby Madara and from there to Carthage to study rhetoric. Freed from the restraint of home, Augustine followed the pattern of many students of his day and indulged his passions by an illegitimate union with a concubine. His son, Adiodatus, was born of of this union in 372. In 373, Augustine adopted Manichaean teaching in his search for truth, but, finding it insufficient, he turned to philosophy after a reading of Cicero's Hortonesius. And the the Neoplatonic teachings. He taught rhetoric in his hometown, Carthage, and in Rome until he went to Milan in about 384. In 386 came the crisis of conversion. Meditating on his spiritual need one day in a garden, he heard a voice next door saying, take up and read. Augustine opened his Bible to Romans 13, 13 through 14, and the reading brought to his soul the light he had been unable to find either in Manichaeanism or Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism. He dismissed his concubine and gave up his profession of rhetoric. His mother, Monica, who had prayed long for his conversion, died shortly after his baptism. Returning to Carthage, he was ordained priest in 391. In 396, he was consecrated bishop of Hippo. From From that time until his death in 430, he gave his life to Episcopal administration studying and writing. He is acclaimed as the greatest of the fathers of the church. He left over 100 books, 500 sermons, and 200 letters. Perhaps the most widely known work from the pen of Augustine is his Confessions, one of the great autobiographical works of all time. It was completed by 401, and like all his major works, it came out of a crisis he or the church faced. In the course of his work, he laid bare his soul. Books 1 to 7 describe his life before conversion. Book 8 describes the events surrounding his conversion. And the next two books recount the events after his conversion, including the death of his mother and his return to North Africa. Books 11 to 13 are a commentary on the first chapters of Genesis, in which Augustine often resorted to allegory. Christians throughout the ages have found spiritual blessing in the reading of this work that Augustine wrote to, to God to praise him for the grace that he had extended to such a sinner as he. The book contains the often quoted, Thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it repose in thee. In the very first paragraph, the sense of his sin and the power of evil revealed by his passionate, immoral life caused him to cry out, Give me chastity and continency, only not yet. That need was finally met by his experience of the grace of God. Augustine wrote another autobiographical work, Retractiones, or Revisions, shortly before his death. 
He discussed his works in chronological order and pointed out the ways his mind had changed over the years. He particularly regretted his early connection with pagan philosophy, because it can never bring man to the truth as it is in Christianity. This is his intellectual biography. Augustine also wrote philosophical works in dialogue form. Contra Academicos is the most interesting of these works. In it, he tried to demonstrate that man can achieve probable truth through philosophical study, but the certainty comes only by the revelation in the Bible. His De Doctrina Christiana is the most important of his exegetical works. It is a small manual dealing with his views on hermeneutics, or the science of interpretation. In it, he developed the great principle of the analogy of faith. By this, he meant that no teaching contrary to the general tenor of the scriptures should be developed from any particular passage. Failure to keep this in mind has led many into fields of error and, often, heresy. With this principle in mind, he wrote many exegetical commentaries on the Old and New Testament. Augustine also wrote theological treatises, treatises of which his De Trinitate, Concerning the Trinity, is the most significant. Trinitate. The first seven books of the work are devoted to a scriptural exposition of that doctrine. His Enchiridanian Ad Laurentium is a small manual of his theological views. This work, coupled with the Retractiones, will give the reader a clear picture in small compass of the theological views of Augustine. He also wrote many polemical works to defend the faith from the false teachings of the Manichaeans, the Donatists, and particularly the the Pelagians. His De Heresibus is a history, history of heresies. He wrote several practical and pastoral works and many letters, of which we have, no, we have over 200 still available. These works and letters deal with the many practical problems that a church administrator or pastor faces over the years of his ministry. His greatest apologetical work, and in the minds of many, his greatest work, on which his enduring fame rests, is the treatise De Civitate Die, properly known as The City of God, 4.13-4.26. to Augustine himself was of the opinion that it was his great work. Shocked by the sack of Rome by the Elaric in 410, the Romans made the charge that this disaster had come upon them because they had forsaken the old classical Roman religion and had adopted Christianity. Augustine set out to answer this charge at the request of his friend Marcellinus. Books 1-10 to constitute the apologetic work part of this work. He tried to demonstrate in books 1-5 to that the prosperity of the state was not dependent on the old polytheistic worship because the Romans had suffered catastrophes long before the advent of Christianity, and what success they had attained was due to the providence of God, of whom they had been ignorant. In the next five books, Augustine demonstrated that the worship of the Roman gods, lowercase g, was not necessary was not necessary in order to attain eternal blessing. Neither in the temporal nor spiritual realms could the, could the gods 
aid their devotees by Christianity, but Christianity could give them, and had given them, what temporal blessings they had enjoyed. Augustine's philosophy of history, the first real philosophy of history ever to be developed, is to be found in books 11 to 22 of this great work. The origin of the two cities is discussed in books 11 to 14. The central idea of the work is developed in chapter 28 of book 14. The first city, the city of God, consisted of all human and celestial beings united in love to God and seeking his glory alone. The city of earth is composed of those beings who, loving only self, seek their own glory and good. The dividing principle is that of love. Augustine did not have the Roman Empire or the Church of Rome in mind when he spoke of these two cities. His outlook was much more universal and opposed to the prevailing cyclical view of history. In books 15 to 18, he traced the growth of progress of the two cities through biblical and secular history. The remaining books give an account of the destiny of the two cities. After judgment, the members of the city of God share in eternal happiness and those of the city of earth in eternal punishment. Augustine did not take into account the place of the Jew in the future and believed that the present age of the church is the millennium. He asserted that the dualism of the two cities is only temporal and permissive and will be ended by the act of God. Although the work is heavy and tedious, a careful student will have a better grasp of the plan and purpose of God after reading it. The development of a Christian interpretation of history must be considered one of the abiding contributions made by this great Christian scholar. Neither Greek nor Roman historians had been able to achieve any such universal grasp of man's history. Augustine exalted the spiritual, the spiritual over the temporal in his assertion of the sovereignty of, of the of the sovereignty of the God who became the creator of history and time. God is Lord over history, and is not bound up in history, as the philosopher Hegel later taught. History is linear, not cyclical. All that comes into being does, does so as a result of his will and action. Even before creation, God had a plan in mind for his creation. This plan will be partially realized in time and in the struggle between the two cities on earth and finally realized beyond history by the supernatural power of God. Augustine also had a wider compass to his view of history than any man before him. He saw history as universal and unitary in that all people were included in it. Herodotus, in writing of the Persian War, limited his work to the struggle between the Greeks and the Persians. Augustine instead asserted the solidarity of the human race. Moreover, he believed that progress was primarily along moral and spiritual lines and was the result of conflict with evil, a conflict in which man had God's grace on his side. The consummation of this conflict would dissolve the sin-caused temporal dualism of the struggling cities in the final victory of the city of God. In this way, Augustine avoided the error of Marx and others who try to make a temporal, temporal relative scene of history absolute and eternal by finding solutions to man's problems in temporal history. The end or goal of history for Augustine is beyond history. In the hands of an eternal God, this inspiring philosophy sustained the church through the dark half-millennium before 1000. 
Augustine is looked upon by Protestants as one who was a forerunner of Reformation ideas in his emphasis on salvation from original and actual sin as a result of the grace of a sovereign God who irresistibly saves those whom he has elected. But in, the, but in his discussion of how man is saved, Augustine so emphasized the church as a visible institution with the true creed, sacraments, and ministry that the Roman church considered him the father of Roman ecclesiasticism. It should be remembered that he made these emphasis to defeat the claims of the Pelagians on the one hand and the Donatists on the other. He insist, his insistence on consideration of the whole tenor of Scripture in interpreting a part of Scripture has been a principle of lasting fail, value in the Church. In spite of these abiding values, Augustine brought some errors into the stream of Christian thought. He helped to develop the doctrine of purgatory with all its attendant evils. He so emphasized the value of the two sacraments that the doctrine of baptismal regeneration and sacramental grace were logical outcomes of his views. His interpretation of the millennium as the era between the Incarnation and Second Advent of Christ, in which the Church would conquer the world, led to the Roman emphasis on the Church of Rome as the universal Church destined to bring all within its fold and to the idea of post-millennialism. These emphases of Augustine should not blind one to his significance for the Christian Church. The Reformers found Augustine an invaluable ally in their belief that man, bound by sin, needs salvation by God's grace through faith alone. Between Paul and Luther, the church had no one a greater moral or spiritual stature than Augustine. 